Well, listen, both campuses, if you have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter number one, would you shout amen? Amen. So we're nine weeks into this study, so I felt like nine weeks in, it's probably a good opportunity for a pop quiz. Are you okay with a pop quiz this morning? It's only one question, but I think some of you will know the answer to it. So here we go. Do you remember how many books of prophecy are in the Old Testament? It's a number. How many books of prophecy are in the Old Testament? Anybody want to shout it out? 17. I don't know who said that, but somebody here nailed it. There are 17 books of prophecy in the Old Testament written by 16 what we call writing prophets. Jeremiah the prophet, of course, wrote the book of Lamentations as well as the book of Jeremiah. So there are 16 writing prophets, 16 prophets who are divided into two groups. The group of prophets in the Old Testament are divided into major prophets and minor prophets. And the reason that they are divided in that way, what distinguishes a prophet as being a major prophet or a minor prophet, has nothing to do with whether or not their message is more or less important. It has to do with really two factors. The first one has to do with the bulk of content, simply the sheer amount of content in the major prophets separates them from the much smaller minor prophets. On average, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, those four are the major prophets. On average, their writings contain 44 chapters. And when you compare that to the minor prophets like Habakkuk and Joel and Nahum and Malachi, these minor prophets on average have six chapters. So you can see the the vast difference in how much content each of these prophecies contains. That's the first reason for the division between major and minor. The second reason is that the major prophets carry a messianic theme with global implications. Here's what I mean by that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all four of them talk about the coming of the Lord, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth, how that every nation in the world will be affected by this coming Messiah. It's a global, these are global themes about the coming Messiah. Contrasted to the minor prophets who write in a much more narrow frame. And they deal really with just Israel and their experiences uh, very, very particular. Or particularly, I should say. Now, when you think about the last three Sundays that you have been present as we've been studying these prophets, we have looked at three of the four. So we talked about Isaiah three weeks ago. Then we talked about Jeremiah. And last Sunday we were studying from Ezekiel. Today, of course, we're coming to the final of the four major prophets, and that is Daniel. And here's what you're going to understand about Daniel from today, I hope, and even next week, because, by the way, we're not going to finish this today. Both previous services, I've had to just end it, and we'll pick it up next week. So we're going to run out of time before we finish. So what you'll learn today and next week um, from Daniel is that Daniel's ministry looks significantly different than do the other major prophets in a couple of ways. Um, One has to do with his call. When you think about the call of God on, on Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, 
all of those men experienced profound, dramatic encounters with God when he called them into the prophetic ministry. You remember Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah's called up into heaven and uh, an angel takes a coal off of the altar of God and he touches that fiery coal to Isaiah's lips and it cleanses his, his tongue and now God says, go and pray. I mean, you don't get much more dramatic than that kind of a call into prophetic ministry. That's Isaiah's call. Jeremiah, you will remember, God said to him, before I formed you in the, in the womb, before you came forth from your mother's belly, I had already ordained you that you were going to be a prophet to the nations. I mean, that's, that's profound. Um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel's call to ministry happened in this dramatic vision where God comes riding into his experience, revealing himself as this all-powerful God in this, this uh, chariot throne uh, that he rides up to uh, Ezekiel on, essentially. It's these dramatic moments and encounters with God. I just need to tell you, it's not that way with Daniel. It's not. I mean, Daniel's prophecy, his call to prophecy, is much more subtle and simple than that. And interestingly, Daniel never left his secular job. He never quit what he was doing to go into the ministry. He just was a faithful guy who served the Lord in a pagan culture. The second thing that differentiates Daniel's prophecy from that of the other major prophets is that Daniel really wasn't a preacher. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't a fiery preacher. I'll tell you the truth. I can't find a single instance in the book of Daniel where he even preached. Now, you may find some and say, well, there, he's preaching there. But I don't think so. I mean, certainly there are times when he is speaking to people and, and interpreting something and, and telling them what's true. But to see Daniel step up and, and say, thus says the Lord, you don't really see that. He tended to write down the revelations that he received in his diary, if you will, and then they were communicated from there. So he's, a, he's not a fiery preacher. He's more of a mild-mannered um, diplomat, if you will. Um, he, he's in the upper echelons of political power. He holds high office. He no doubt is well uh, positioned in, in the, the, not just the government, but in society. He is no doubt a wealthy man. Um, and he just remained faithful in that place of service. Which, by the way, I have to tell you, gives me great encouragement. And it ought to give you great encouragement as well, because here's what it means. You don't have to have this dramatic, profound encounter with God in order to have a life that is deeply impactful for the Lord, right? The call of God on your life doesn't have to be profound in order to be powerful. It doesn't have to be this spectacular moment where God sends you out. No, just be faithful. Just do what God wants you to do in the place where he has you. And your life, like Daniel's life, can have great impact. And so I've asked you to turn to Daniel chapter 1 so that we could get a position on who he is, how he arrives in Babylon, and how his ministry begins. And so you follow along as I read, beginning in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll just pick it up right there at the beginning. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. 
And he brought those vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain ones of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but those who were well-favored, those who were skillful in wisdom and cunning in knowledge, those who had understanding and uh, understanding in science or learning, and those who had the ability to stand in the king's palace, and those whom they might teach the learning and the tongue or the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the king's wine which he drank, so nourishing them for three years, that at the end of those three years they might stand before King Nebuchadnezzar. Now among these uh, there were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and unto Hananiah he gave the name Shadrach, and unto Mishael he gave the name Meshach, and unto Azariah he gave the name Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, the year is 605 B.C., And in that year, which verse 1 tells us, is the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, who is the king of Judah in Jerusalem. In that year, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and besieged Jerusalem. He came and took over Judah and began the process of conquering the city of Jerusalem. And verse number 2 tells us that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. You might read that and think, well, why didn't God defend King Jehoiakim in Jerusalem? Why, why didn't God run to their defense? You would think these are the people of God. They're being attacked by a pagan, uh, awful enemy. Surely God would come to their defense, as you see him do multiple times throughout the Old Testament. But not in this case. In fact, the opposite is true. Verse 2 says that God gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because this is the exact judgment that he had been warning them of for more than a century, prophet after prophet, as we've learned over the last three weeks. You have heard them say over and over, repent, return to the Lord, or else you will end up in bondage to the Babylonians. And they continued to not respond to that message. And so ultimately, God kept his word. And in verse number two, he gave them over into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar then began to take the people of Jerusalem and to expatriate them or deport them out of Jerusalem down to Babylon or over to Babylon where they would become servants in his kingdom, where they would become people who would live as Babylonians. Now, over the course of years, there would be three major extraditions of Jewish people, deportations, where In parts, he would take them out of Jerusalem and Judah until finally, Jerusalem would be emptied. It would be absolutely emptied of its inhabitants. 
But the first of those deportations begins immediately, Daniel chapter 1, when verse number 3 says, the king says to Ashpenaz, I want you to begin deporting the people. And who are the people? Who are the first ones that he takes to be in his kingdom in Babylon? Those that he perceived would bring the greatest value to his Chaldean empire. Look at verse number 3. The king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. He said, first of all, I want you to bring those of royal descent. I want you to find the kings and the royal families, family members, and those are the ones that I want you to bring down to Babylon. He then goes on to say, verse number four, you are to bring those people who, in whom there is no blemish, but they are well Favored. These would be good-looking, healthy, sort of cream-of-the-crop kinds of, kinds of folks that, that Nebuchadnezzar, judging on that outward value system, would say these are the best and the brightest, the biggest, the tallest, the best-looking and the smartest. I want them to be the ones who you bring first. He said they are to be, verse number four, those who are skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, those who understand science or learning. Go get the advanced class. Go get the A-plus students and bring them down to Babylon. He goes on in verse four to say, those who have the ability to stand in the king's palace and those to whom we can teach the language of the Chaldeans. And so they take this elite group, this cream of the crop, if you will, the superlatives of all of the people, the young people in Israel, and they begin to move them over to Babylon. And look at verse number six. Now, among these first deportees, among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, you know these names by, or at least the last three, the three friends of Daniel, you know them by their Babylonian names. So Daniel is Daniel's Hebrew name. His name, the text tells us, was changed to Belteshazzar. We don't ever think of him by that name. We always think of him by his Hebrew name, Daniel. But his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Amishael, and Azariah, we don't remember them by their Hebrew names. We remember them by their, their Babylonian names, which are, as you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from chapter 3 fame, where they are um, refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and they are tossed into the burning fiery furnace, and God delivers them. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, um, Mishael, and Azariah, are there with Daniel. And they are taken into the land of Babylon. Now imagine this. These are, well, these are teenagers. I started to say young men. They're really not even young men. These men are in all likelihood 15, 16, maybe a tad bit younger, certainly not much older than that. They are teenagers and they are swept up and dropped into this pagan, secular culture in Babylon. And there is an agenda. There is a clear agenda to take these Hebrew people, these four and all the others, and press them into the mold of the Babylonians. You see this program uh, over and over in chapter number one. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does in verse number one and two is that he takes out of the temple in Jerusalem the implements of worship, the vessels of the house of God. 
And he takes those pieces of furniture, those candelabras, those, those gold and silver implements of worship. He takes them down and puts them in the house of his God. Now, why would he do that? Well, I mean, the value of those things aside, there's another reason. And that reason is because it was sending a message to all of the Jewish people. Here's the message. Our gods are greater than your God. Because if your God was greater, he would never have allowed his temple to be looted. But look what we have done. We have defeated him and taken all of the implements of worship. They are now possessed in our house. That's a, that's a mental game. It's a way of saying to them, our God is greater than your God. Verse number four, Ashpenaz is instructed to bring those men, those young men down there who could be taught to think and talk like the Babylonians. We want to teach them the language of the Chaldeans. Verse number five, we want to give them the king's wine. We're going to give them the king's meat. We're going to serve them all of the king's food, which by the way, was all non-kosher. And which all, for them to eat it, would be a violation of the dietary laws and the laws of worship of one God because all of those meats and all of those wines would have been offered in sacrifice to the idols of Babylon. And yet that food is set before Daniel and his friends and all the others. And verse number 6 tells us that he even, as we mentioned, changed their names. Unto Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. Hananiah became Shadrach. Mishael became Meshach. And Azariah became Abednego. We're going to change your names. Your Hebrew names honor God. We're going to change your names to Babylonian names, which don't honor your God, the one true God. They honor the gods of the Babylonians. Imagine these four guys had to go down to the DMV in Babylon and get new driver's license for their camel driving so that they could... You can imagine them walking out going, man, that is not my name. I don't want to carry that name. But here's what they were doing. Your God is weak and not powerful. We are going to teach you to think like we think. We're going to teach you to talk like we talk. We're going to change your identity, and we're going to press you into our culture. It was all intended to change who they were. Loved ones, both campuses, listen to me. It's no different than what the world does to you and me today. The world doesn't care if you say, I go to Brookstone Church, if you say you're a Christian. The world doesn't care that about that. But here's what the world is absolutely committed to. They want you to act and think and behave and share the values that they share and speak like they speak and in every logical, logistical, practical way to be a person of this world. So you can call yourself a Christian if you want to, but don't talk like a Christian. Don't live by the Bible. Don't share the values of the scriptures over the values of the world. We want you to act and think and be like we are. We want you to mold with us. What's well, what they were doing to Daniel and his friends. And so Daniel had to make a decision. He had to make a commitment. And I want you to jot this down in your notes. What you'll find in chapter number one is Daniel's courageous and courteous. It was courageous, but it was also courteous. Daniel's courageous and courteous commitment. Now, I want you to imagine this moment. Daniel's, Daniel and his friends, 15, 17, 18 years old. They, they're brought into Babylon from Jerusalem. They're carried, they're brought into this massive, vaulted banquet room. They've never seen a place like this 
for people to gather for a meal. Beyond the temple in Jerusalem, they've never seen a banquet hall like this. They're brought in and there's a table stretched across that room. And that table is lavishly set with beautiful uh, dishes and meal uh, uh, foods and wines, golden goblets of wine sparkling in the, in the candlelight. And they're, they're pulled up to the table and in front of them is a meal like they've never seen. The only problem, as I mentioned, is that to eat the meal for them as Jews would be a violation of God's law. They were said, they were told, dig in, boys, have all you want. Now, to make the temptation worse, they look down the table that way, and they look down the table that way, and there sit all their friends from Jerusalem, and maybe there's some cousins and some family members, and they're just, they're just enjoying it all. And so they may be thinking, well, you know, when in Rome, do like the Romans do, or when Babylon, do like the Babylonians do in this case. And yet, Daniel made a commitment. Look at his commitment, verse number eight. Daniel had purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. The word purpose means to set your feet, to put your foot down, to take a position and not to yield from it. Daniel had decided before he ever got to the table what he would do in such a moment. And so he decided he he wasn't going to eat it. I want you to jot this principle down, and I hope you'll always remember it. I'm confident you'll find it to be true in your life, that the victory over temptation is won or lost before the temptation arrives. It really is true. That if you wait until the temptation is in front of you, If you wait until everybody else is doing it, if you wait until the opportunity to sin or disobey the Lord is in front of you to decide how you'll respond in that temptation, you've probably lost the battle before it even starts. But if you will decide when temptation comes, this is my answer in the grace of God. When the temptation comes to me, I already know how I will respond. Then you are on the first step of winning that battle. Daniel, verse number eight, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. The word defile means to pollute, that he would not pollute himself. Can you imagine the courage that this required to say to Ashpenaz, I'm not eating this food. I I can't eat this food. I will be unclean. I will be polluted. That would be offensive to Ashpenaz. And maybe even to Nebuchadnezzar, word might get up to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel thinks his food is unclean and that it will pollute him. And so he needed great courage in order to take this stand and to remain faithful in that stand. And don't you know that Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends, who also made this commitment, by the way, don't you know that they were an encouragement to him? Don't you know the fact that Daniel wasn't standing alone encouraged him in his stand? And by the way, the same thing will be true for you. Your commitment to the Lord will be bolstered when you surround yourself with people who are committed to the Lord. When you're, when you're in relationship with other people whom you can lean on and they can lean on you, who will challenge you and you can challenge them, and who just know you and they know all about you, that accountability, that partnership will help you stand strong. The reason some people fall is because they are all alone. They isolate themselves and then they fall. And so he had the encouragement of, of uh, his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he makes this courageous 
commitment. But he's not rude about it. He's courteous. He, he, he doesn't say to Ashpenaz, get that food out from in front of me, man. What are you doing putting that, that non-kosher food in front of me? I can't eat that. That's, that's non-kosher. That's, that's polluting. No, he's kind about it. Look at verse number eight. He makes a request. He, he reasons with. He says to Ashpenaz, hey, listen, is it okay with you? It's just all the same to you. We're not going to eat that. That's, that violates dietary laws, and so we, we can't eat that food. Is that okay with you? And Ashpenaz responds in verse number 10 and says, listen, King Nebuchadnezzar himself has dictated that this is to be your meal, and if you're not eating it in three years, you're going to stand in front of him, and if you're looking weak and beggarly and not healthy because you didn't eat the right foods, I'm going to be in trouble, so you really need to eat it. And so Daniel says, well, let's do a test. Can we try it for 10 days? It's literally what he, what he requests in verse number 12. He says, prove or test your servants for 10 days. For 10 days, let them give us, here's the King James word, pulse. You know what pulse is? Have you ever bought cans of veg-all? <laughs> it's, it's, it's mixed up, mashed together vegetables. He says, for 10 days, let them give us vegetables and water. And at the end of 10 days, you see how we're looking. And if we're looking you know, weak and beggarly and unhealthy, then, then we'll figure something out. But if not, then we'll just keep on eating this. And so they do. And after 10 days, they look more healthy than any of the rest. And so the Bible says in verse number 16 that they gave Daniel and his friends veg all and water for three years. You imagine three meals a day, that's all they had? Was mixed ve- or mashed vegetables and water. And yet, because of their obedience, God blessed them. Not just physically, but God blessed them in so many ways. Look with me at chapter number 1 and verse number 17. It says, as for the four child, these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. God blessed their, their minds and their, their wisdom and understanding. In verse number 18, It says, at the end of these three years, the king had said that they should bring them in. And so the prince of the eunuchs brought them in to stand before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them. And among all all of them, there were found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore, they stood before the king. Here's what happened. They were healthy after three years of eating this diet. They stood before the king after that three years. He was more impressed with them than any of his other counselors. They won the right to be his permanent counselors. And he, says, uh, he said that he found their counsel to be ten times more true, more wise, more insightful than any other counselors in his kingdom. And I want you to look at verse number 21. God blessed Daniel as a result of his commitment so that Daniel lived, he continued or lived under the first year of King Cyrus. Now we don't know when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah died, but Daniel outlived them and he lived all the way through until um, the 70 years of captivity were complete and the Persian Empire came in under Cyrus. There's one other thing I want to show you in chapter number one, and then we're going to move to close. But I want you to look back up to chapter 17 at the end. uh, I'm sorry, verse 17. At the end of verse number 17, notice what it says about Daniel. It says that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So one of the ways that God blessed Daniel was to cause him to be able to interpret dreams or visions that he would have or that other people would have. And that ability, that divine ability from God 
to interpret these visions and these dreams became the methodology, the method through which God would give prophetic insight to Daniel. And those truths would then be communicated to the people and down through the ages now to us. God used Daniel in this issue of interpreting visions and dreams. You may remember from Daniel chapter number 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a great image and he can't remember it. And Daniel tells him what the dream was and what the dream meant. And that solidified his role in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom even further. You may remember from, da- remember from Daniel chapter number 5 that uh, God showed up and his hand wrote upon a wall. Do you remember that? Belshazzar is the king of Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom's going to fall that very night to the Persians. And God's hand shows up in a banquet hall and writes on the wall, mine, mine, tikel, you farsen. And nobody knows what it means. And Daniel comes in and interprets that and says it means uh, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting and your kingdom is taken from you. And that night his kingdom fell. Daniel has this ability to do this. And then you come to chapter 7, and I want you to go there. Daniel chapter number 7, where beginning in chapter 7, Daniel begins having visions of his own. And it's through these visions and, and dreams that God gives to Daniel that we see God's agenda, his plan, not only for Israel, but for the whole world. So here's what I want to do in the maybe eight or nine minutes that I have left with you. I want, to, I want to begin to lean into Daniel's visions. We're going to survey a few of them, and then I'm just going to position us for next Sunday because we're going to finish this uh, message on Daniel next Sunday, and then we'll lean right into Zechariah, and it'll dovetail beautifully as we talk about Zechariah next Sunday. If you're committed to being back next Sunday, shout amen. amen. Awesome. Amen. You'll all be back. That's great. I want you to go to Daniel chapter number 7, and I want you to notice Daniel's first vision in the first few verses of this chapter. Look at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. This is his first vision, his first dream. So he wrote the dream down, and he told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night And behold, the four winds of heaven were striving upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. They were diverse from one another. So his vision is of four great beasts. And they are grotesque looking creatures. First beast is found in verse number four. The first one was like a lion, a grotesque lion. Verse number five, he describes the second one as a, a bear. Three ribs in its mouth. Verse number six describes the third beast, which is a leopard. Had wings like a a bird. Had four heads. These are grotesque looking animals. Verse number seven tells us about the fourth beast, which is so grotesque he can't even come up with an animal that it looks like. He just says it is dreadful and terrible and it has great iron teeth. And so imagine, Daniel has this vision of these four beasts coming up out of the sea. What in the world could that mean? Well, God tells him what it means. You ought to be glad God interprets that for us, and we're not left to ourselves to interpret it. Look at verse number 17. God tells Daniel what these four beasts represent. Verse 17, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings or kingdoms, empires, which shall arise out of the earth. 
So in Daniel's first vision, hang with me, I know it's a lot of information. In Daniel's first vision, he sees four empires that will arise. And these four empires will oppress God's people. They will, they will overpower Jerusalem and they will oppress the Jewish people. Four different empires. And these empires will rule over Jerusalem in a time period that Jesus spoke about. It's a period of time that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. Do you know this phrase? Have you heard this before? The times of the Gentiles. And you see this phrase uh, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, where Jesus said, they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led captive among all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, by these Gentile empires, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles is a period of time where the Gentile nations are ruling over Jerusalem and the Jewish people and it will end, according to Jesus, it will come to completion or be fulfilled. If it has a definite ending, then it had a definite beginning. And when was its definite beginning? The year 605 B.C. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of King Jehoiakim, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came and began to rule over Jerusalem. And for the very first time in Daniel chapter 1, Jerusalem conquered and built and established by King David. It's temple built by his son Solomon. For the first time in 605 B.C., the Gentile nation Babylon takes it over, begins to rule and trample it under feet. That's the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles will continue until Jesus comes again and establishes his kingdom there in Jerusalem. That's the times of the Gentiles, and it's represented by these first four beasts. Let's move on to chapter number eight. That's the first vision. The second vision that Daniel has is in chapter number eight, and it is a vision of the second two of four kingdoms. Now, Daniel lives in the first kingdom. That's Babylon. He's living in that kingdom, that empire. In chapter 8, he has a vision of empire number 2 and empire number 3. But the images are different. This time it's not um, a bear and a leopard. This time, look at Daniel 8, verse number 3. He says, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram with two horns. Two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. The higher came up last, and I saw this ram pushing westward and northward and southward. No beasts could stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. He did according to his will, and he became great. And as I was considering the ram, then behold, I saw a male goat coming from the west on the breadth of all the, the face of all the earth, and it was not even touching the ground, coming so fast. It seemed as if it was barely touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And if you keep reading, this goat attacks the ram and defeats the ram. And the goat now is ruling. And you read that and you go, what is the ram and the goat all about? What could that represent? And praise God, the Bible tells us what it represents. We don't have to wonder. So look in verse number 20 to see the interpretation. Verse number 20 and 21 of chapter 8. He says, and the ram which you saw, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. This is the Medo-Persian Empire, followed the Babylonian Empire. And the rough goat which you saw is the king of Grecia. And the great horn between his eyes is his first king. This is the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. Daniel's living in the Babylonian Empire. God is revealing to him there's two more empires coming. Next will be the Medes and Persians. Following that will be the Greeks. Then you come to chapter 9. Turn there. 
In chapter number 9, Daniel is going to be confused. And his confusion is going to become is, is going to happen because of what he's going to read in the scriptures. Look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made um, king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians fail, now the Medes have taken over, the Persians ultimately will, will uh, take over. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, by scrolls, the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet saying to him that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Stop right there. Remember, Daniel is living in the Babylonian empire. He has this vision that future empires are going to come and take over and trample Jerusalem underfoot. Then one day he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah, his predecessor. And he realizes, Jeremiah says, Jerusalem is only going to be desolate for 70 years. And at the end of 70 years, God's, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, you know what Daniel knows? If y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. You know what Daniel knows? That 70 years is almost over. He's been living in Babylon all of that time. Remember, he was of the first deportees to be brought down. He's been living in Babylon for nearly 70 years. And he's confused. Because if there's only a few years left in the 70 that God said to Jeremiah, those 70 years then how is it that the visions that he's having is revealing that there are going to be multiple empires that are going to come that are going to hold Jerusalem down for at least hundreds more years if the 70 years are up? Do you see his confusion? How could this be? And so the answer to his confusion, and maybe yours, comes in his vision or his understanding of Daniel's 70 weeks. Jot that down and then we'll be done for today. Daniel's 70 weeks. I want to take you to Daniel chapter 9. I want you to look at verse number 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. God is speaking to Daniel, and here's what he says. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, who are Daniel's people, the Jews, and upon thy holy city. What's the holy city? It's Jerusalem. Seventy weeks have been determined for the Jewish people and for their holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Wow! That's an agenda that all of these wonderful things are going to be accomplished in, according to verse number 24, these 70 weeks. Well, what are these 70 weeks? The word weeks means sevens. Somewhere in the margin of your Bible, you might write that down. Weeks equals sevens. The word that's translated weeks is a word which simply means a block of time, which is sevens. It might be seven hours. It might be seven minutes. It might be seven days. It might be seven years, but it's sevens. Now, we know from the context, in this case, it's years. So when he says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined, God's, I'm going to accomplish these things in 70 weeks, it's 70 weeks of seven years each. 70 times 7 is 490 years. God says, I'm setting aside a time block of 490 years in which I will accomplish these wonderful, these six wonderful things 
uh, in the world and in Jerusalem and among the Jewish people. Now, maybe you're sitting here today on either campus and you're saying, I wish God would have just said 490 years because 70 weeks is so confusing. (laughs) Why does he do it that way? Understand, this is only confusing to our Western minds. This was not confusing to Daniel at all because Daniel and the Jews and the Hebrew scriptures calculate in sevens. The reason this is confusing to us is because we don't calculate in sevens. We calculate in tens. We talk about 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. We, we calculate time in decades and in centuries and in millennia. We, we talk about tens. Not so in the Hebrew scriptures. Not so in Israel. They calculate in sevens. Think about the seven days of creation. In six days, God created the earth. The seventh day, he rested. It was a seven-day process. Every seventh day is the Sabbath. Every 49 years, you have the year of Jubilee in the 50th year. After you pass seven Sabbath years every seventh year, they calculate in sevens. By the way, do you remember, I think it's in the book of Luke, where Peter asks Jesus this question, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? What did Peter suggest? Did he say a dozen or 10? No, he said, how many times should I forgive him? Seven, right? They calculated in sevens. And Jesus said, no, not seven. What did he say? 70 times seven. So do you understand? For Daniel, this wasn't confusing. He said, God said to him, you will, or I will accomplish in these 70 weeks all of these wonderful things. I will finish the transgression. That is, I will turn away the transgression of Israel. I will make an end of sins. That is, I'm going to solve the sin problem. He's referring, in my estimation, to the crucifixion of Jesus. I will make a reconciliation for sin. I'll reunite sinners with God. I will bring in everlasting righteousness. I'm going to establish my millennial kingdom. I'm going to seal up the prophecy. All of the things that all the prophets have said will be brought to completion, and we will anoint the most holy the Messiah will come and rule in that kingdom. And he says in verse 24, I will do all of this in a time period of 70 weeks or 490 years. Now, one last question before I send you home, and that's this. If God is going to do all this in 490 years, when do you begin calculating those 490 years? Look at verse 25. It'll tell you exactly when. Verse number 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. There's the beginning point. This 70-week period begins from the moment that the command is given to go and build Jerusalem. And you begin counting from there and 69 weeks later or 483 years later, verse 25 says, the Messiah will come. Jesus will come. So when did the command to rebuild Jerusalem go forth? Look at it on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, would you send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. Now, bits and pieces of it had already begun, but the rebuilding of the walls and the completion of the city, that command was given by King Artaxerxes in the book of Nehemiah. And do you know what year that was? If you're listening, shout amen. Give or take, it was 450 BC. 
And he said in 69 weeks or 483 years, Messiah will come. And if you start at 450 B.C. and you add 483 years, you will end, give or take, at around A.D. 30. Which would have been right at the time that Jesus would have ridden into Jerusalem and proclaimed himself to be the Messiah of Israel. Can I believe Bible prophecy? You better believe that you can trust Bible prophecy. And so... Next week, we'll come back together. I hope you'll be back. And we'll finish this thought of these 70 weeks and how all of this unfolds. And then we'll lean into Zechariah next week. But you may ask the question, well, where is all this going, Pastor? I mean, what's the point of all of this prophetic language? Why are we spending time talking about it? Go back. Let me show you one verse to close. Chapter 2 and verse number 44. This is where all this is going. Chapter 2 and verse number 44 This is the chapter where Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this great image. And this image represents these four empires. In chapter 2, verse number 44, here's what God says. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Where is all this going? It is going to the sure return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. We know and believe that Jesus is coming and Daniel has detailed for us how that unfolds over the course of history. Some of you are thinking, now wait a minute, if 69 of those 70 weeks passed all the way back 2,000 years ago, what about seven years? We're far beyond seven years now. How could that be? That's such a great question. Come back next Sunday (laughs) and we'll answer it.